Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is Simon Byron. Simon is one of the hosts of One Life Left. Uh, he's also had a a long and storied career in video games, starting out working as a video game journalist and moving into PR. Most recently, he's started working in publishing and, and making his own games. And and it, he's he's brilliant. Like, I mean, I've known Simon for a long time and I knew he was going to be funny and, and full of, of funny, good, interesting stories. Uh, and he was. But, you know, as much as this is like such a, a weird construct, this, this sort of podcast chat, even with people that, you know, I've known for a long time. I've had several people on the show that I've known for many, many years. Um, but you never sit down with somebody and say, "Okay, let's let's talk through your entire life." Um, but I, I, I honestly, I highly recommend it. Um, whether or not you release it as a podcast or not, but it's it's a good excuse, you know, if nothing else, to just really sort of dig deep with somebody and uh, really get an insight into, into what makes them tick. And then this this was a, a brilliant episode. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And there are like. When I, when I sort of knew I was going to be chatting with Simon and we finally managed to set something up, I knew there'd be a couple of really excellent stories, and he did uh, he did not disappoint. Um, and a, a thing actually, I just started doing recently, as of literally yesterday, I did it. I think is I'm going to try and sort of start cutting little short stories from the show and making them. I I, I did one last week. I, I cut a small chunk of uh, the show with Rami and I put it on YouTube. Because you know, like like everybody in the in the world in the twenty first century, my attention span is being shredded by the day. So I thought just these neat little kind of three or four minute chunks, like funny stories or you know insightful stories, they they're just nice bite sized chunks you can you can share around. Uh, at the minute, they're just on my YouTube page, which is youtube.com forward slash Tecklandanine. I'll probably set up a, a dedicated one if people are interested or share it around. <coughs> Excuse me. Everyone, everyone getting that cold, yes, yeah, that time of year. There's a flu going around. I've got a little bit of a cough, I'm afraid. Um, okay, so if you if you would like to get in touch with the show, it's uh, you can email us. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com. It's also at Checkpoints Show on Twitter and Checkpoints Podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. If you really like the show, we also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you've got a spare pound or two every month, that you want to throw away, help make the show even better, help us do bigger, broader, brighter autosave episodes more than anything, I think. Um, I'm actually going to be doing one of those quite soon. There's a, an event coming up in Edinburgh on the 20th called Games Are For Everyone. And it looks brilliant, and I would highly recommend going along if you're if you're in the area. I think it's going to be quite a lot of excellent games. I'm hoping to speak to a few devs while I'm there. So yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really looking forward to that. So yeah, if you enjoy the show, patreon.com forward slash checkpoints uh, also just please do tell a friend you know tweet about it rate and review on itunes if you like you know so this is I'm, I'm hot and cold on this you don't know how i stand but uh yeah if you like it just just you know share it around tell a friend tweet about it facebook about it. facebook is better i think facebook is stickier people kind of tend to view facebook for longer like twitter lasts a couple of minutes at best um well you know you don't have to do anything but you know it would be i would appreciate it but I, I appreciate you listening to the show in the first place. So thanks for downloading the show. 
<sighs> Man, we've we've really got to do something about the Tories, everybody. Can we all just can we all agree on that? Like Americans don't vote for Trump. That's easy. Don't don't do that. But everyone in Britain, like we really let, let's let's all figure something out, shall we? Because they're they're really awful. <laughs> really, honestly, it makes me so angry. Uh, anyway, let's not let's not get lost in in politics. There's enough of that everywhere. Let's just enjoy this uh, this wonderful journey through video games. Um, thanks as always for downloading the show. I hope you enjoy it. Please do tell a friend. Please do continue to listen. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. I think yeah it's uh it's quite a topic it certainly is it certainly is well let's get into that so let's do let's do a formal introduction simon for the okay for the sake of of uh tradition i suppose <laughs> um simon welcome to the show thanks for coming on uh, if you don't mind would you introduce yourself thank you for having me uh it's been a long time coming this it certainly has yeah uh yeah no i get very nervous talking about myself um i am simon byron hello uh, i am Publishing director at Curve Digital, uh, co-host of video games radio show One Life Left, and current sensible soccer world champion. <laughs> is that is that still um, it's valid? St- it's still, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's valid. You refuse to play anybody, therefore <laughs> Quite- you are the champion. What have I got to gain? You know, people say they're, they're, um, they're running sensible soccer tournaments all the time. And they're like, hey, will you come along and play? I'm like, no, no way. You can't take it off me. It'd be amazing if like a real team did that. Just one year, man, you're like, like we're not giving it back. No, this is it. We're champions forever. I'm surprised no one's cottoned on. Um, okay, so you've had like a, this interesting, long, varied career in the video game industry. Um, if you can remember, Simon, where did this all begin? What was your very first experience of a video game? Well, uh, I'm getting old a little bit, so I'll probably get some of the times uh, confused. Uh, we may protect the names, depending on what we come on to. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Bournemouth, a seaside town in the south coast of England. Um and being a seaside town, uh, its uh, its main industry is tourism, and um, there are a couple of arcades down there. So I've always uh, been around video games or computer games or arcade games for as long as they've uh, existed. And I think even before that, I think the um, the attraction of games uh, was there for me. I remember um, when my parents used to take we used to head down the pub on a Friday night. They used to give us. 10ps to go yeah. and play play on some of the um some of the games there so yeah i couldn't really pinpoint an early uh like what games the did they have in the time. pub like what sort of games well so back then it was this was uh just as the coin-ops were emerging but so at the riverside pub uh just outside christchurch um was where we used to go uh fairly frequently and it had a games room so it had some pinball tables and it had some other sort of uh put money in and flick a ball around that sort of um like a physical mechanic, like yeah, like a mechanical type like skills game. around somewhere. Exactly, skills I didn't have. Um, oh, sorry, skittles. Yeah, skills I didn't have. Um, yeah, so we're always sort of playing games. Pinball, I was never particularly good at. But then, um, yeah, as I was growing up, um, I guess uh, computer games became sort of more and more popular. They started in 
the arcades, as I mentioned, and then um, my my mum bought me or bought the house a Binetone um, plug and play uh, black and white Pong. And was it just you? I realise I don't I don't know if you've got brothers or sisters. I got uh, yeah, I've got a sister. Of course, um, yeah, no, I do know that. I do know that. I know do sister. you how? Um, I don't. It's something <laughs> to do with. Uh, I'm joking. Story, I'm just, okay, okay, okay. I'm just saying I don't want right. <laughs> to. Don't want to see you around my house Christmas morning. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So I actually, yeah, I've got. Um, I've got a sister. and I've got two uh, sort of half sisters. My parents uh, split up when I was young. Um, so there were a few years when um, it was just me, my sister, and my mum. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I can't imagine the um, the hardship that uh, she suffered or the sacrifices that she made to pander to my. <laughs> enthusiasm but uh yeah she um she bought one of the binatone arcade machine uh, sorry um, plug and play pong consoles was that like because your parents had got divorced or was this just like you were desperate for video games oh i don't know i think she would um yeah I, i'm incredibly grateful for the um for the uh that the money she would she would spend on stuff you know she, she bought me um ZX81 uh, was the first computer that I had. And from that point forward, she would, uh, yeah, she was the sole source of my computing. So, I, you know, I can't, it, it's, um, you know, as, as a single mother bringing up two kids, um, yeah, incredibly difficult, uh, yeah. sort of late say, 70s, early 80s. Um, yeah, I don't know where she found the money from, um, but I'm very grateful that she did. Uh, but you clearly she, you had a thing for them and, you know, if... if... You'll, you'll yeah. listen to make your kid a bit happier. You get him, get him these newfangled games. Maybe he'll yeah. even learn something. Def- yeah, definitely. I think um, you know. I I used to. I was friends with people who had computer game, who had computers. Um, so I think there was an element of me pestering, you know, saying, oh, "My mate's got this. Can we get one? Can we get one?" And uh, yeah, I didn't take the sort of traditional route though. We went from the pong. Um, console uh first computer was a zx81 um then it was a vic 20 uh and then um a dragon 32 <laughs> my nice. mum yeah first dragon 32 i think is it i yeah again because we weren't um we weren't wealthy or anything like that my mum um i think uh used to buy consoles or so computers at the end of their life cycle um and uh dragon had gone bust i think when we when we picked one up from the co-op but yeah again it was uh it was a, it was a good computer to have it was color imagine you get, that like the, 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 there is a, a kind of uh, a certain benefit in doing that because you can tend to just grab up whole libraries of stuff for peanuts and then suddenly you've got all these games to play Definitely, yeah, and a, a lot of the scene around then revol- um, revolved around uh, typing in listings or, or playing yeah. around with simple basic programs. So there was an educational side to it as well. Although you know, I've I've, I've long forgotten um, <laughs> what it was like to actually program. Were you at all like uh, not a connoisseur, but were, were you like seeking out games, or were you just like whatever? All games are brilliant. I'm going to play everything. Yeah, there, there was certainly an element of of, of um, quantity over quality. I think. Um, you know, uh, sadly, um, a lot of that was to do with piracy. And so back then, ZX81 games were on tape. Um, uh, and you, there were sort of tape-to-tape uh, hi-fis that you could get. Um, um, and were you, like, did you have uh, friendship groups? I mean, like, the piracy thing, like, that—that that is obviously a common thing. Everybody had these sort of 
groups and this, it was essentially like a, a shared pool of games that everybody uh, had access to. There should be an amnesty now. I feel I should. Oh, absolutely! Sort of yeah, no, there is. Extend um, my wrists and send me down. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> but no, they've got um, they've got them on display in the the National Video Game Arcade. It's part of video game history. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, there was. Um, you know, it's what the shareware model became, isn't it? So you yeah. sort of get stuff out there and you encourage people to play it. Um, yeah, I certainly did have uh, friends um, <laughs> who uh, <laughs> I would hang out with more because of the. Um, the computers that they had at home but uh, yeah it was it was um it was a really exciting time you know i uh just i mean i think because the the sort of levels of expectation if you were loading a game on the on any of the tape-based uh, computers it, there was often a time where it just simply wouldn't work um you know so was that that was the first point of excitement like is it, is, is it gonna actually work or if not rewind the tape start again um yeah in the um in the computer shop in uh, in Bournemouth um seeing uh, the introduction of um the ways in which programmers were trying to make computer games um more entertaining so to sidestep some of the disadvantages like uh, the time it would take to load you know first of all it was the introduction of some uh, music to play as you were yeah. as you were listening and we all fondly recall some of those soundtracks um and then it was uh playing games as as the as the tapes were loading you know i mean that was um that was quite something when that came out uh and this was before um namco and uh oh it was the race what's the racing game that's on the start of ridge racer um oh i don't know i know what you mean though yeah this was long before that sort of happened so yeah i mean actually some of the um some of the more uh, technically accomplished programmers come out of those scenes there, you know, and the, the public domain and demo scene, particularly on the Amiga, where people were doing just the craziest things with the hardware. You know, these guys went on to become, you know, to write some of the, some of the, um, some of the best games that we used to play at the time. Yeah. And they still do that now. Like you still see like new demos come out that are just absolutely unbelievable because they just people love the the limitation of it and the the challenge of it and stuff absolutely yeah and, and it's a it's um yeah a a really good way to show off and uh, one which which i was never <laughs> never able were you were you did you try though like were you interested in doing that or were you just like oh this is too hard i'd rather just play a bunch of games <sighs> back then um computer studies uh, as they were known, um, were just entering schools. And my school uh, didn't have very many um, computers. Uh, so the computer studies group uh, was massively oversubscribed. Um, there, was, there was a lunchtime club that uh, you could sort of turn up to. But if you wanted to actually learn it back then, um, you had to be very lucky. Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't make the cut for the computer studies ones. I had to do music instead. I am neither a programmer nor a musician. <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you have to do like a test to get into the computer club? No, I actually think the computer one was just luck of the draw. It was massively oversubscribed um, because uh, you got to play on the BBC micros. And, yeah. Um, yeah, just one of those things, you know, of course, <laughs> my son, who's um, seven, just about to come eight, like I think at his school, he, everyone's got a Chromebook. So different times. But yeah, I was, um, you know, I would uh, I'd play around with the listings in the in the magazines uh i'd definitely yeah I'd, I'd enjoy the the challenge and the excitement of typing something in a particular i remember one on the dragon 32 was um to do with a uh 
recreating the trench run um, from Star Wars, and and yeah, the 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 joy of typing it in and then pushing run and then trying to work out where you'd gone wrong and then all of that sort of stuff. But you know, there was um yeah, there was a perverse um, appeal, I think. But um, yeah, I sort of dabbled with basic, but back then it seemed um, that the really good games would be advertised as. Uh, written in a hundred percent machine code, whatever that meant, um, <laughs> you know. But that they were doing stuff directly with a computer, and um, yeah, that was, uh, you know, when you would go into Woolworths and just get the Spectrums to say Simon is skill in in various colours. <laughs> uh, I don't think I was going to be getting any jobs writing writing computer games. That, <laughs> but you that could, level. Did, how did uh, so? How did your relationship with games kind of? change as you got older did you, did you remain as kind of much of a fan or did you did it wane a bit it did yeah i think you know it became um obsessive I, I suppose you know i would try and um play as much as i could you know bournemouth pier boscom pier um in particular was uh if you were spending time down on the beach um and you had sort of very limited money back then the idea of spending some time on the on the on the pier and first of all you know like watching uh all the all the bigger boys um, finish donkey kong and stuff like that i mean, actually know that so it, i think it happened before that you know I, um, there was a chip shop around the corner um from where i grew up and we used to um to go there with my mates and, and what you do is you'd ask for scraps and this is, this is basically the sort of burnt bits of potato that they couldn't sell yeah and they're given to you for free, uh, but only at certain times. And you know, oftentimes you had to you had to wait. Uh, and there was initially, I think it was a scramble machine in the corner. And um, yeah, again, standing that that idea that you know you'd stand around and watch people play, and then you'd be brave enough to have a go yourself. And you know, those uh, those up and down alien ships, and uh, there's something psycho- psychological <laughs> about the way they. You know, it's almost if the objective was to fly into them, I would be very good. It's uh, there's something very strange about it. But yeah, um, and then go on to the meteor. You know, scrambles a game I've 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 never finished. Um, but yeah, it was it was there in the corner and it was making these noises. And you know, some of the guys who had the high scores, you know, they were local celebrities and stuff. So from the chip shop to the pier, um, I think. Uh, so yeah, seeing games like. Uh, Start, you know, the Star Wars arcade game. I had a friend, Stuart Wicks, who became so good at that he could spend literally the day playing Star Wars, the 3D vector game. Uh, he got thrown off, the, he was banned from the pier <laughs> doing that. Um, That's amazing. I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone um, that had that experience because, like, nowadays everyone plays together all the time. You know, you're always online and stuff. But most people, if they, the first introduction to the games, they're sitting at home, maybe got a couple of pals. But for you, it was like, this public sphere where people would go out and this was something everybody did and yeah, you'd know yeah. how good people were or they weren't and, and weird. i think i think i think to see um how quickly they evolved over that time you know it was yeah. really you know to, to go from the classics the galaxian space invaders um that sort of stuff to then move on to you know i can't remember the exact order that they came but you know seeing things like tron the arcade machine uh, Marble Madness, you know, suddenly appear. Gauntlet, these loud, booming four-player you know, speakers shouting at you. Um, I became quite good at Akari Warriors, um, okay. uh, which, yeah, I mean, to this day, I, you know, just hearing the 
hearing the soundtrack to it still still makes me giddy. I would love to have a version at home, but very difficult to emulate because it had an eight way controller. You could yeah. you could move forward while shooting backwards. And it's the um, audio as well. You never get the kind of uh, like big booming audio absolutely, you get in old arcade absolutely. caps. Um, you know, just being around when when Dragon's Lair and Space Ace suddenly popped up. You know, like, what on earth are these? And and um, yeah, I mean, they were they were quite expensive. So I was I would I would rarely actually dabble myself. But but to sort of stand around and watch people get further and further into into the cast, you know, it was. Um, I remember was watching really... a guy play through the whole of Dragon's Lair once in the Mega Bowl arcade in in Newport. Right. And it was it was mind blowing. I think there was about yeah. six of us. We'd just been bowling and we just stood watching the guy play the whole of Dragon's Lair because everyone has a go and everyone dies exactly. pretty much straight away. Yeah, you know, and it's a super basic game, and actually, you just need to be rich enough to be able to yeah. play it enough to to memorize it. And um, but yeah, no, it was all about characters in the arcade, wasn't it? You know, like these these local show offs, I guess. Um, the I we would do things like um, you would pester pester people to let to let you have a life. I don't know why, but you know, can I can I have the uh, next life and sort of <laughs> jump in there. And, all the rest of it but yeah that that's it you know games i think games when they emerge in the arcade were there specifically to take your money off you yeah um, and, and actually you know these days they 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 are there to give you as much bang for your buck as you can get certain games obviously Most of them, yeah. games are there to, <laughs> to take money off you <laughs> at regular intervals but um yeah so there was the arcade scene and then um this this the, the sort of at home scene um yeah, and just just some some really really fabulous times, you know. Even on the ZX81, a completely primitive mute system. Uh, the um, the Scion flight simulator, entirely black and white block. Um, but you used to fill in the gaps with your own imagination, you know. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I think that's why back then they were they were um, quite impenetrable because you needed to take a leap yourself. You know, my 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 parents were. Um, were never interested, you know, because if you if you were playing a race, you know what what you're doing. Oh, I'm playing a racing game. Well, you know, you're you are you are currently an inverse A sign. Um, <laughs> you know, my uh, I, I remember it well. It's something that I repeat very often. My mum said to me, she, well, she was trying to get me to do something, and I was playing on my computer. She said, "Come on, you aren't going to get anywhere playing those things." And and now, you know. It, it pays my mortgage. She was absolutely right at the time, um, you know, but no one could have imagined where they would have gone. Um, and then, yeah, the 64 and on, on the Amiga, that's where things became, you know, more colorful and more noisy. And you, that's where personalities began to emerge. You know, you used to know a lot about the creators. You could say who'd written what, um, and some people yeah. could so clearly like you were you were in so you never you never had like a, a waning period where you kind of went off games for a bit because they weren't cool i didn't no i was i, I stuck at it <laughs> <laughs> uh, i was committed i went uh because it, it was the amiga that um that got me into the industry as such um uh i had a friend who uh whose dad uh used to um used to drive a van dropping off magazines at shops and often he would he would end the day and there'd be sort of spares or overruns or stuff like that and he always used to have um like loads of computer mags so we used to i used to that's why i started reading them um and then uh i started working when i had an amiga um i was a printer was my first sort of proper job um and that's that you know that was a fantastic job for a youngster because um 
when you start off as an apprentice, you get trained in a lot of things. I spent three months wrapping things up in brown paper. But once you, I'm, very, I'm a very good rapper. I think <laughs> <laughs> if you ever get presents off me. Um, and uh, but once you get into printing, um, you know, once you once you've been taught how to do it, you would the the skill in lithographic printing as it was back then was in the setup. So you'd be handed this plate. You know, you'd be doing either single color, two colors, or four colors if you were if you're very good at it. Um, and you'd set it up uh, again. That, that, that would take some time. But then once you were into the job, you know, we were printing tens of thousands of Manila folders for a, an insurance company uh, based in Paul. And that was a job that once you had it, it would take weeks. So you'd set it up at the start, and you'd need to sort of check it now and again. But once it was up and running, you could just stand around reading yeah. and, sm- and smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so I just used to stand around just reading computer games magazines and, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, it didn't really stop until, until, um, until I got the job on the one. Um, so yeah, no, and again, you know, seeing the emergence of video games, uh, journalists, you know, actual names and mm-hmm. wanting to be those guys from Zap, Zap 64, etc. um, and then, you know, which was like, OK, you know, I would I would really like to say, imagine doing that. You know, you you get to play computer games all the time. Absolutely. Uh, so um, whilst I was learning to be a printer, uh, I had aspirations to be I don't know. Yeah, sort of anything. I think I think people I think at that time people became games journalists because they were initial, they were just fans of games. Um, it wasn't that you wanted, you had aspirations to write particularly. Yeah. Um, it was to sort, it was to sort of play them. And, and I think, I think you did that because you couldn't make them yourself. And so as a way in, uh, it was, you know, at that stage, this was, um, the early nineties. Um, that was the only way that I could get into the games industry. And, uh, I had one failed attempt. Um, I applied for a job on Amiga Power, uh, which I didn't get. Stuart Campbell got it, deservedly so. Um, just like, was that just like a listing? Yeah, it was a listing in Amiga. I remember I remember Amiga Power launching and how exciting that prospect seemed. And actually, they launched with um, a cover disc which had a full game on it. And, you know, that was, um, you know, there were tape, there were cover mounts on... Um, on magazines, but I don't recall them being uh, full games as such. Um, and so I bought Amiga Power before I had an Amiga. I was collecting it, you know, like many readers. Absolutely, as was, yeah. As I was to find out, <laughs> people weren't interested in the words on the magazine. Um, uh, so I bought Amiga Power, and then I think there was an advert in there. And um, so I applied for that job and uh, didn't hear anything back. I, mean, I rang up Matt Bealby to ask if I got the job. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh Stuart Campbell got it and yeah I think Stuart Campbell is ex- as an excellent writer uh and uh yeah so much so much better than me um so the second job I I uh applied for was on the one and there was a magazine I read a magazine that I enjoyed um I got uh so you had to submit a sample review I did John Barnes International Soccer nice a game we all remember I'm sure um <laughs> I typed it up at my then girlfriend's house. Typed it up, uh, put it in the in the, in the uh, post, and, and sent it off. And um, got a call. Did I get a call? I can't. Yeah, I, I can't remember how I first. But I went up there for uh, my first interview, and um, 
yeah, walking into EMAP, be like, whoa, this is where... Yeah, that must have been amazing, because you're still, like, quite young, and this is like, oh, my God. Oh, it was. It was terrifying. You know, I got the coach up from Bournemouth. I was wearing likely my school uniform. (laughs) I can't can't really (laughs) remember. Um, Feeling so intimidated, you know. I know um, imposter syndrome is something that many people experience at a time in their life, but, you know, when you've got no... Because you think of that as journalism, but you're not, you know, but I had no journalist sort of skills or training at the time. And um, what am I doing here? And it's not like uh, you know anyone either. Like nowadays, everybody is online and everyone is answerable. Yeah. Whereas this is yeah. like people off in another world. Like, Oh, and, um, you know, Julian Rignall was in the room, uh, was, was in the building. Gary Penn was there. I'm like, whoa. Um and the first interview was rock hard. Uh, it was with Jim Douglas and David Upchurch. And uh, they sort of chat, chat, chat about you and your background and you know, stuff and um, what have you. And then they, they, gave, they gave me a list of scenarios. Like, oh, okay, cool, cool. So we're just going to um, ask you a few questions here. So um, you've, uh, you've written a review. Uh, you've, um, you've given it 75, you know, and that's, the, you know, that's what you think it deserves. Uh, and the review has gone to print. Uh, um, then you get a call from the PR from the software publisher, and they are furious because everybody else has given it ninety. What do you do? Okay, well, you know, I explain that I'm, you know, I'm just a staff writer, and uh, I talk through my reasons for it. Uh, and but then I'd, um, I would say, you know, perhaps you want to take this up with my editor. Well, the editor's not there, so what do you do? Well, you know, I sort of, I sort of reason with that. Okay, and then um, this uh, fictional scenario um, continued until until uh, pu- the publisher had withdrawn all of their advertising from the whole of EMAP, <laughs> not just EMAP images. What do you do? <laughs> like, I tell you what, I do. I sit here and cry. Um, yeah, I, 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 that was an interview that hurt. I, I, I. I left there with um, a, a, a genuine pain in my head, and uh, <laughs> I got the coach back to Bournemouth. And was like, "Yeah, I didn't, I didn't expect." Yeah, I was I not expect- expecting it, expecting it to be that intense. Like, I, oh, I always imagined I, I, like the magazines it's... in the '90s to be just a bit kind of freewheeling and whatever. Well, I think once you, once you were on the other side, um, yeah, once you'd made it past that wall uh, where reception was, I mean, that's exactly what it was. But yeah, I don't know, maybe. Maybe Jim Douglas and David Upchurch had been harshly treated by someone else in an interview, and, it, and you know, and so it continued. Um, but yeah, now I went back for a second interview with the publisher Mike Frey, and he was a he was an intimidating man. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it came down to me and another guy, um, uh, and they picked me, um, which you know I was I was absolutely over the moon with. I was uh, when was this? This was ninety two. I must have been. 2021 uh and that was it you know left bournemouth uh moved up to london uh, on my own i was on um four and a half thousand pounds a year so uh like when dave uh told me that on the phone i was like right are you joking like no was it four and a half or was it seven and a half i did i think i sorry, i took home 450 pounds a month and my rent was 250 so <laughs> it was um it was a really tough time you know emap back then was a place where a lot of people wanted to work you know it's like music journalism where yeah there's just no shortage of candidates so so they can pay peanuts and that's you probably know, always been the way to be honest so what you do i hope it's better now you know because back then it was it was you know there, there were there were two occasions um 
where I didn't have the one pound ten it um, it cost to get the tube from East Finchley down to um, Farringdon. Um, I was so poor. You know, my my mum, uh, you know, used to drive up um, or uh, she'd come up with. Uh, loads of microwavable food packs for me just to sort of keep me going so <laughs> yeah you know i all thought i owe her and my and my um stepdad um my mum remarried when i was 10 11 um yeah like both incredibly supportive of me so yeah I, without those guys you know I, I wouldn't have been able to do it it was just it would have been too much but you got to play uh, all the games though all the get to play all the games all the time um yeah and it's, it's very very quickly that you realize that's not the case you know um that dream. <laughs> well, actually, it was it was. Um, so when I first joined the one, um, it was so it was running out of EMAP images. Uh, we were on the floor with PC Review uh, on the first floor with CU Amiga. I think Me Machines, CMVG were also up there. Uh, Official Nintendo Magazine were in the build, or so they launched just after I joined. I think. Um, and yeah, you know, it was it was a company run by people who didn't understand video games, who trusted these kids to um, to get a magazine out the door every month, you know, uh, you know and, and and that happened. But it, when I first joined, the cycle was so demand like you would mess around for two weeks playing sensible soccer. Um and then you go, okay, I've got a magazine to get out now. And then you would write through the night in order to get it done. And you were so burnt out by the time the magazine had gone to press that you were too, you know, you go, okay, well, let's just play some sensible soccer for the next <laughs> week. And it was a vicious circle. But, um, yeah, it was brilliant, you know. Uh, so um, Jim moved. Jim was editor of the one uh, just before I joined. He moved off, and that was where the vacancy came from. It was David Upchurch was the editor. Gary Witter was the staff writer. Uh, sorry, was the deputy editor, and I was the staff writer. And, you know, I couldn't have wished for a, a couple of better people to enter the industry with. You know, Gary, Gary then um, uh, always had aspirations to do, uh, to be sort of bigger than the games industry, I think. And, you know, even then he was sort of, playing around with script ideas and stuff and david upchurch who had previously worked on ace um was was just a, a fantastic mentor to have who you know taught me an awful lot of things and yeah we were um we were really close um you know i was very much the young boy so uh the job you get as a, or you got as a staff writer back then was tips so you would uh, you'd have to type up the tips for or the, or the solutions <laughs> for the adventure games, you know. And this was just on very basic um, Macs. Um, uh, you know, there was no internet then. Um, so how quickly did did it? I mean, I'm not saying that it did. Maybe it didn't. But you, like, did you start to kind of be like, oh god, I've got to play this now, rather than like, oh, I get to play everything. Yeah, what we tended to do was um, was try and split the games out by uh, like if you had someone who liked a particular series or was or was knowledgeable in something, that's how we'd initially uh, split them. The um, the real <laughs> the real problems came with things like the SSI strategy games, which I don't think anybody understood, not even the people <laughs> publishing on them. So these sort of um, uh, yeah, these wars you'd never heard of, <laughs> games based on like, in depth hex-based strategy games you would you know you give them a half page review and you'd give them a middling score and <laughs> cross your fingers and hope for the best because back then you had no idea what what the critical consensus of 
of anything was. You know, we had um, you know people on the magazine, and there were people, um, you know, there were in inverted commas our sister magazine, CU Amiga. But actually, we would, um, you know, whilst they were our sister magazine, we used to have quite quite a rivalry with them. Um, they used to sell more than us, uh, and therefore they used to sort of benefit from 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 that weight, and they would. Um, often get things before us and so we used to sort of just do our best to wind them up so <laughs> when you make a magazine uh, or when you made a magazine back then um you'd print out the flat plan which is um like a top-down view of what of what the mag what the sections of the magazine yeah. are going to be page one would be the front cover page one two eight would be the would be the back cover um and it, you would you would dot around you know you'd speak to your advertising manager and he'd go okay well i've sold um all right i'm going to sell 10 full page magazines and uh, sorry, 10 full page adverts and um, you know six half page and you'd slot those in you'd do them around letters and whatever you try and make it so that you could um, so that the structure of the magazine when you when you when you read it wasn't di- disrupted by the things that were paying for the magazine yeah uh, yeah and, and often you would um, you know you would fill in as you'd go so you'd have the review section uh, you know 16 pages or what have you and you'd go here's my lead review that's going to be six pages da 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 uh, we often, we knew that Dan Slingsby, the editor of CU Amiga, used to walk walk the corridors of EMAP, looking at other people's flat plans to see what they got in. So we would we would deliberately wind him up by buying either making stuff up or just putting US Gold exclusive here, and he would drive <laughs> he would drive him nuts. So uh, yeah, it was a, it was a fun time. But that, but the, but again, sort of I. Um, I mentioned letters then, you know, like as the, as, as the staff writer, that, that was your job, uh, was also to write the letters. You know, so you had to open all the letters up, you had to decide if they were any good, you type up the ones that were good and you would make up, um, ones to fill the space if you didn't have any good ones. So a lot of my friends from school appeared in the, in the <laughs> ones letters page with made up letters. Um, but back then that was your only form of reader interaction, you know? Yeah. And so, and so, I don't know how games journalists do it these days because, you know, you're open and online. And if someone takes a dislike to you, they can search for your social history or they can just call you an idiot over and over again on the Internet. You know, back then, if someone didn't if someone didn't like something that I'd written, I just put it in the bin. <laughs> and, and, and that was that, you know, and that, I think that only happened twice. Surprisingly, the one um, I was most privileged to uh, put in the bin was um, where one reader had spotted that um I'd had a letter printed in Amiga Power, I think issue issue nine, and it was essentially slagging off CU Amiga, essentially, um, which was a bit awkward. And I end up working <laughs> working for the sister magazine, and um, <laughs> I kept quiet about that for a while. And then um, after Gary left, uh, I think he went to Future. He went down to work on PC Gamer, I think. Um, so after he left. Uh, it took us ages to find um, a new staff writer. I moved up to deputy editor. And so, so me and David Upchurch uh, basically wrote three entire issues of the magazine, um, like all of it. And like I don't think we had a day off, like a day off at all, not, not a weekend day off for about three months. And it was fine. You know, it was a job that I enjoyed, but it was it was quite, you know, it took its toll. And yeah. uh, during one sort of bleak night when we were, because you had to take, you had to take, um, take photos of the screen back then to get screenshots and all of this sort of transparency. You know, all the sort of admin, you know, wait or waiting for the for the proofs to come back. I I sort of fessed up and David was like, 
you bastard we were convinced that they'd made that up um yeah because there was a, there was a real uh, you know what 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 i particularly enjoyed about those that era of magazines is that there was a real there's a sense of camaraderie certainly but also there was a real rivalry between the magazines in the individual sectors and we used to goad each other in print um and it was different then, you know, because 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 it took so long, you know. Um, we used to really, we used to have, I think we used to have a, a healthy respect for uh, Amiga Power, and we used to we used to quite like the guys on Amiga Action, but we used to sort of not really like Amiga Action. Um, I think out of the three Amiga Games magazines, that was the one that was like, oh. <laughs> um, so we used to, we did a couple of things, um, which. You know, and he, in the moment, you're like, you're writing something, and you go, this is going to be funny. And then you write it, and it gets it goes over to a designer, they lay it out, and it gets proofed, and it gets sent off. And then, you know, a week later, it comes back, and you're like, shit, I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, the, the first one we did was uh, a... Um, it was the Europress magazine that introduced a section... Uh, by a guy called Brad Burton, who has gone on to, uh, he's, he's now an inspirational speaker. Um, but back then he was writing their lifestyle features for, um, which were inserted into every Europress magazine. And we just didn't see what it was doing in there, you know, because it was all about sort of life on the streets in Manchester. And um, it just it's like a supplement to the magazine. Yeah. Yeah. It just sort of popped up once. And we're like, what on earth is going on here? And um so we're like, okay, this is pretty funny. So, so we used to try and um, be quite creative with our sort of next month pages. We used to do a different style every month, and so I decided to do one with uh, which was just ripping that off and or taking the mick out of it. And so I wrote it, and I was like, oh, this is really funny. Came back, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> and um, yeah, he. Uh, what, what did you say? What did you say? Oh, I was just sort of talking about. You know, I was doing sort of street speak and you know all of this sort of stuff. I, I don't, I don't, I don't. It was just a page. And, and I, yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't mean it to be offensive. I meant it to be <laughs> funny, and I think it was. It was more offensive to those guys than it was me, particularly. Yeah, I was chatting to um, Jason Dutton. who was doing the PR at Micropose at the time, and he was mates with Brad Burton. And he, he uh, Jason, turned up. You know, as he used to swing by every month. He'd go, "Yeah, I was chatting with Brad Burton. You know, he's really angry um, about this." I'm like, "Okay." And uh, Jason's like, uh, yeah, you know, you know, he sort of knocks around with some pretty tough people, don't you? I was like, no, I didn't, <laughs> didn't know that at all. And he said, well, you know, I would just, uh, you know, I just, I would just watch out. Then Brad called me up and he's like, all right, all right, Simon. I'm like, hello. <laughs> he said, uh, he said, what do you think you're doing? And I was like, no, I didn't, I didn't mean, I didn't mean it. And he said, look, <laughs> that was absolutely, he said, uh, you know, um, I'm not particularly happy about this. Uh, just watch your back, eh? And I was like, right, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do. <laughs> terrified for a month, you know. I uh, yeah, I know. I was really nervous walking around some of the trade shows. Then we, um, but you know, like, do you learn from your mistakes? And um, Amiga Action introduced um, a readers' reviews double uh, DPS regularly in there and they were just the most appalling written reader you know readers would write in and like oh so we did um we we're like okay let's do some reader reviews ourselves um and again you know it was super in jokey uh we were just um you know all of the reviewers were um uh people that like 
mate to the magazine and stuff. So uh, we sort of, so I, I wrote it and then I handed it to the, the uh, to one of the designers and so I couldn't know, this is the inspiration, can you do that? Yeah, cool. Comes back with proof of it, you go, yeah, that's fine. And um, back the magazine comes and you're like, shit, <laughs> like, <laughs> this is awful. Um, yeah, and I think I think before, prior to that, something like that, that, that sounds like it's it's almost too subtle. Like that, you know, like they're, uh, they're they didn't reviews. like it though. No, they they then ran a news story saying Simon Byron, king of comedy, and like just really slagging me off personally. And I was like, okay, fair <laughs> enough. You know, I mean, I think that's where we took it too far. Like it used to sort of reach ahead around the ABC times, and um, we once beat Amiga Power by nine copies, and our publisher Mike Frey was over the moon. Uh, and uh, we were like, yeah, yeah, brilliant. And I think um, either Dave or Gary wrote in the in the flannel panel the the, the part of the magazine that wrote lists who's done what. And it, and it just at the bottom it was like, so long, AP. Um, thanks for the uh, thanks for the memories or, or or something like that. You know, we're beaten by nine copies. <laughs> uh, and um, our publisher said to us, he said, oh, lads, that's uh, that's brilliant. If you beat Amiga Action, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you all strippers. <laughs> and and we're like oh please let's I'm like we don't please amiga action beat us please amiga action beat us and they did <laughs> thankfully because we weren't interested in any of that obviously um and so we did that magazine comes back we're like okay yeah that's quite funny that's quite clever and then um week later sasha who used to run the reception at emap um she had a thick uh cockney accent so uh, the thing we used to always remember her shout was trout and salmon because we used to publish trout and salmon and it always used to make us laugh. <laughs> anyway, she shouts out the one I've got some flowers for you. Um, I can't do, I can't do uh, Cockney accents clearly. Uh, I mean, I've got some flowers and yeah, it was Amiga power. They'd sent us some flowers saying, thanks for all the free publicity. And we never came close to their ABC ever again. <laughs> so it, like, it just goes to show, uh, you know, never, never take things lightly, but yeah, you know, it was, it was, I, 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 I think, you know that element of personality. I don't think we were particularly good at it necessarily, but you know it was fun at the time. That's that sort of thing is is missing now, and I think that's a real shame. You know, yeah. I think I think games journalism has become um, more ethical, more open. I, I, um, ethical is probably the wrong word. You know, I, I, for all the corruption allegations, I I I never saw it personally. I did I did hear of instances of it, but. I, I never knew anybody personally who'd who'd specifically been given anything to uh, yeah. to write a review. But I think games journalism is much more open, and I think it's much more honest. You know, we would um, we would often review pre-release software. But, you know, back then the whole timeline shifted so much. You know, that in order to get stuff um, in the magazines around the time they were being published then you know it was it was it was often quite difficult and yeah you know publishers did take advantage of our naivety whether that was deliberate or not you know i, I reviewed um legend of kyrandia from westwood studios you know that was given to me on an amiga hard disc and when it when it was published it came on 13 floppies <laughs> like one of the animations for malcolm the sort of lead villain villain in it was really smooth when i reviewed it and oh yeah on disc it was <coughs> <laughs> like five frames a second so that that was a bit embarrassing i think but... you do get stuff like that not 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 that specifically but like the kind of uh banter to use a terrible word um you get that more between yeah. like youtubers and streamers and stuff like that as opposed to like big video game sites now because they're a bit too maybe but where did so where did we lose that then you know i i um 
Was it? Is it because? Uh, yeah, I don't know. There, there were so many PlayStation magazines um, that. Yeah, I, you know, I think some some personality. PlayStation World was was one official PlayStation magazine. You know, just became this huge lifestyle sensation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't really recall people taking pops. And that's it. But you know, I, you know, Edge, which um, you know, a magazine uh, that you know at its peak was was just phenomenally important. Was it because they didn't have bylines? You know, it was because you didn't have personalities, in-print personalities? You know, um, some of your guests previously talk about the time with PC Zone in particular, where, you know, there were these huge characters that yeah. sprung from the pages where, you know, they were born out of the fact, you know, often those those pieces will have, will have started as the result of something dropping out later, you know, l- last minute, someone will have to write something. Um you, you, you know, so is it maybe that's part of it. Yeah, like just the whole deadline thing of like, right, yeah. we need to. We've got this much space. We need to write whatever. We just need, need to fill, fill that stuff. page. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, um, you are, and that, and that's it. You know, back then we could sit behind our words and type into this tiny Apple computer. Um, whereas now, to be a game journalist, you've got to be a writer. You've got to be a presenter. You've got to, you know, you've got to do audio, video, all of that sort of stuff. Then you've got to put up with the comments, aren't you? Know, yeah. Maybe that. Maybe that's why there aren't any personalities <laughs> to be causing too much trouble. So hey, you did that for a while. Like, did you? I didn't. Yeah, I didn't do it for long enough. I um, I entered as a staff writer. I was very, very quickly promoted by. Hey, you, you know, mean out- not long enough? Like you, fe- you just in retrospect. I was, I, I was only there for two years um, in magazines. You know, I, I continued to freelance afterwards, and I used to edit, uh, develop magazine. You know, some, some, sometime later. But I, I think you know, and this is, <laughs> this is um, something I'm very good at. I arrived at something just past its sort of uh, its sort of peak, I think, and then left before. Yeah, I, I left before I should have. Yeah. I think why why I did you leave? What did you do? Well, I was, uh, so I became deputy editor after Gary left and then uh, David Upchurch left to launch PC Games because they were becoming a thing. And then I moved on to editor of the one very quickly. And yeah, I, I, I really did enjoy that. But the, the day I was made editor of the one, um, which was a magazine exclusively about the Commodore Amiga, yeah. um, that day, literally that day, Commodore went bust. Um, <laughs> I should I laugh. Do, I should. I laugh. do hope it, uh, I hope it was coincidental. But um, you used to throw so much into um, putting a magazine together. You know, whether you were, you know, you'd write twelve hundred words for a for a, for a DPS. You would. Um, you would fight for cover-mounted stuff, which you know ultimately would, I think, go on to ruin the games industry. But back then, we were putting together um, two 880k kilobyte demo discs. Uh, you know, you would fight tooth and nail for those. Um, you'd stay up late, uh, and then you would invest so much into it, into the content of it, and the personality of it, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and then when it came out, you would uh, you'd, you'd you'd go and wander around Smiths in Hoburn. And you would watch people. Uh, well, first of all, you would go out and put your magazine over, literally over the copies of every other magazine <laughs> in the sector. I don't know what the staff of Smiths in Hoburn ever thought, but they, <laughs> but they, they must have known that we that the EMAP worked around the corner. And then you would sort of stand around and watch people pick your magazine up, and um, they would open it, they'd sort of flick through it, read the contents, and you'd sort of stand there looking for a reaction. Um, 
And then you'd see them rip, rip the cover discs off and buy Amiga Power. And you're like, oh. <laughs> um, but, you know, you used to throw everything into it. And then when I realized that um, there weren't going to be many new owners of a Commodore Amiga, you know, if they were stopping to make the machine or, you know, eventually uh, the, the content for it would um, would dry up. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a sector on the up anymore. And um, I found that very difficult to know that actually it was, it was unlikely we were ever going to sell any more copies than we'd previously done. Yeah. Um, and then once you realize that, you realize, well, actually, it doesn't matter what you put on the cover and actually doesn't matter what you put in the um, magazine. You know, who cares what's on the disc? It's very dangerous. You know, it's a very difficult job to do. So I went up to... Um, my publisher uh, and the managing director and i said you know hey uh this has happened you know i'm not sure i can continue to do this anymore and you know or for much longer and they went well, well you know simon we've got got big plans for you here and i was like cool what are they went can't tell you um and so yeah i was i was offered a job in a up-and-coming pr agency at the time and so i i moved across to that and you know i, I don't i don't regret moving into PR uh, then um, I do wish I'd have had a bit more time as a games journalist you know I did um, I continued to freelance for EMAP uh, on and off um, and then you know I, I wrote some stuff uh, you know years and years later but but actually you know feeling that uh, you were um, like I'd like you used to write a magazine for your readers uh, and 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 that and that sense of interaction you know and people appreciating what you're doing or finding what you've said funny um or you know any of that sort of thing um was yeah was 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 something i think i could have benefited yeah that i could have done with for longer how was pr was that good did you like it was it or did it become more like a job as opposed to like a big fun thing well I, every um every slight change in career I've made, uh, I've actually got closer to the core, closer to the center of the games industry. And so, um, uh, PR was, um, something that I, uh, I was good at, but I never really liked. And I was always slightly embarrassed by it. Um, mainly because of the reputation of it, which is ironic given that it's uh, an industry yeah. that apparently, um, it's all about reputation and stuff like that. But um, I think if you're a games journalist, you've got very real credibility. If you're a PR, games PR, you know, there are, there are people that, you know, really do enjoy the job and uh, are very good at it. Um, I struggled to, um, I struggled with the lack of credibility. You know, when you are, so, you, so when you're working in PR, you are you you interface between you know if you're at an agency you are the interface between a publisher or a developer and the journalists okay and um, there are some um, like like at, at its worst you know you are the sort of sleazy PR person who will lie um, who will you know tell one person something another person something else all for the best of it and I I really struggled um, to do that my um, and I would teach anybody that came into PR it came into work un underneath me that, you know, there are, there are two rules in PR. And one is um, do what you say you're going to do. So if somebody says, Hey, can you do this for me? You go, yes. And you make sure that you do it because there are a lot of people that particularly in the, you know, journalists are 
relying on you to get them what you said you're, you're going to get them. You know, yeah. Hey, I'm going to do this interview. You know, like don't never promise something that you can't deliver. And the second is just, just don't lie. You know, there are, there are times where you would choose not to say something, but like if you ever, if you ever lie, you can do that once and then you're going to have absolutely no credibility at all. What, um, what struck me about moving from journalism to PR was that when you move slightly further away from the media, um, you, you know, actually everybody, everybody is like it it sort of peels away a layer obviously where people do know what they're talking about and people do know what the problems with their games are you know i mean generally a publisher or a developer will 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 often have a very realistic idea of where their game will sit in the grand scheme of things yeah and as a journalist you sort of sit there and you go oh you know this game's terrible why is that and there are there are often many 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 reasons why a game uh will be will be bad um and there is often a story behind those and um you, you know it's it's um no one ever sets out to make a, a bad video game i don't think anybody would have said anything more obvious on your show declan but um but you know no one does um people may may want to make a game quickly in order to you know see some sort of market opportunity particularly if it's tied into something else but um but yeah, to actually sort of make a bad game, then yeah, look, no one does that. And, and and so I found I was I was really surprised that um, you could have conversations with um, people who would and, and you know when you were when you were talking about this game and how it's going to be, then you know people would be very honest about it. I was I, again I was very lucky. I um, I ended up working with uh, so I worked for an agency called Bastion um, with Kieran Brennan and Dean Barrett and me. It was just us three when I joined and. Um, uh, yeah, it was brilliant. You know, I learned a lot. Dean and Kieran. Dean had um, Dean had previously been Dean had previously worked at Commodore and uh, Ocean, and Kieran had been a journalist. And so these were great industry people um, with experience in areas that I didn't have that were then sort of helping me get on the on the uh, PR ladder. And and um, my first client, or the first client I was working on at Bastion, was um, Virgin Interactive, and. Uh, so the first <laughs> first week in PR, we were working on Doom Two, and, and PR was very different back then as well. You know, it, it was the idea that that it was all you know the media were um, very narrow. So you had games press and you had lifestyle press, and and actually, while some lifestyle press would cover games to a certain extent, basically what you were trying to do was was like if you if it wasn't getting scored, you wanted to let people know that stuff was out there. Yeah, we were we were working on. Um, doom 2 uh now was that with gt or was that with virgin it may have been with both actually the first um so uh kieran i think it was decided that in order to promote the release of doom 2 we would bike um review copies out in a jiffy bag full of offal Uh, (laughs) and we worked around the corner from uh, smithfield meat market at the time and um so yeah, uh, that's what we did, and so we got a load of offal, you know, and we didn't consider the wider implications of exactly what we were doing at the time, and we sent it out to these newspaper editors to go, hey, this this game's coming out, and um, the end of my first week at PR ended with a call from the police going, what are you doing? Um, and, and I, you know, it's easy for me to say now, I, I never agreed with doing that. I was always wary of it. But, you know, back then it was it was like, you know, um, I think that year we, the Evening Standard run a 50 worst PR stunts this year. And we were second behind Benetton. So, I mean, that was, 
That's that's that, that's something, you know. Quite some going, yeah. Still second though, which must have been annoying. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we were um, working with Virgin at the time, uh, who were absolute pioneers in terms of what they were doing for a, 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 a British software company that they just did not give a shit. Um, and, you know, some of their stories are, are have been told in various books and interviews, the story about um John Hare signing Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll from Sensible Soft, uh, Software, signing that to GT Interactive, I think it was, or, or, or Renegade, and being thrown back, thrown down the stairs by Sean Brennan, who was the marketing guy at Virgin at the time. Um, <laughs> stories about substance abuse and you know, all of this. And it was, it was crazy, absolutely crazy. Um, some real personalities uh, working at Virgin at the time. And... Um, Oh, it was just enormously exciting. You know, they used to, um, there was no expense spared in where they would fly people. So my, to my, I, I think I'd been in PR for a couple of months and I was, I went out to, um, looking glass to, um, see flight unlimited at the time. And, you know, going out to America, uh, on expenses was really exciting. And then working with Virgin on, um, command, no, on, yeah, command conquer, uh, I worked with them on some of the Dave Perry stuff, um, Lion King, Aladdin console versions. Uh, and was, was it like creatively satisfying? Because there, like, there must there must have been something. You spend so long working on a magazine, you know, you have this kind of habit you formed essentially of yeah. like writing stuff. And even if the feedback was quite limited, there was still feedback. Oh, absolutely! You know that was that was probably the the biggest thing I missed was was that was was being able to say, "Hey, I wrote that." You know, um, at best, so no, I think at worst you are a you know you you are you are a conduit um, to the sort of heart of the game when you're doing PR. You know, at, at, at best you are coming up with ideas that you think might you know might be fun or interesting, and and I I always tried to do it, and I always used to come up with ideas that I was interested in um, or that I thought were fun, you know? Um, so uh, once um, <laughs> uh, we said, well, I think we were launching command and conquer. We were working with EA. It was one of the command and conquers. And um, we seriously looked into uh, whenever the last total eclipse was in the UK. Um, I forget when that was, but it coincided with one of the command and conquers coming out. And we were genuinely, going to project Kane's face onto the eclipse <laughs> as it happened, potentially ruining that moment <laughs> for everybody. Uh, but it was, um, it was Graham Struthers who now works at Devolver. He's you now one of the Devolver team, actually. Um, he was the guy that approved it. He's like, yeah, cool, that sounds fun. Go and look into doing it. So I'm like, okay. We genuinely looked into it. It's going to be quite expensive, and it really relied on there being cloud cover on the day and actually turned out to be slightly too much of a risk to do. And with hindsight, I am chuffed to bits that we never did it because... <laughs> You know, uh, you could have nabbed that number one spot with that. Well, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. You know, I think it would have been fun. You know, the, the idea was to make it like Flash Gordon movie where Ming appears. Absolutely. Get yeah. Kane, get Kane in the sky would have been fun. I oh, know it's um, a good idea. Like, don't get me wrong. It's like, so, so that's so that sort of stuff, you know. And um, much later when I was working on the Guitar Hero games, you know, I, I launched. I launched the first one and um, that was a real. um you know, Red Octane at the time was Kelly Sumner, who used to work at Commodore, then worked at um, Take-Two, 
uh, was there during the GTA days. Oh, I was working with actually two K when they when they got Max Clifford on for to get um, GTA on the front page of the Mail. Um, uh, so was Kev- what was that story? That sounds like a good story. Oh well, it was just when the first GTA came out, which you know, if you look at it now, like. You know, I, I, it's um, it was a game that if it came out now would 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 cause very little controversy. You know, but right. at the time, you know, that top down view and what you could do was was highly controversial. So uh, yeah, they decided um, that they would work with Max Clifford. You know, who sub- subsequently turned out to be the sort of person we all suspected he was in terms of his morals. Um, yeah, he, he helped get that on the front page of the mail. He got it raised in the house as a commons, I believe. And, you know, back then that was seen as a triumph. There wasn't any particular sophistication about, um, you know, getting that, that word of mouth to use a horrible phrase. But that uh, is relatively, you know, that is requires a certain amount of thinking where you're like, right, this is going to be controversial. Let's lean into that rather than try and avoid it. Yeah, and you know, I don't think there was a great deal to lose. You know, um, the industry was uh, was slow moving then, right? So you couldn't patch anything particularly. It was all physical. So you know, if there had been any repercussions, the game would have been long sold by then. Yeah. Um, so I don't think there was a huge amount to work. I do think potentially, you know, when people caught controversy, there is a real or back then there there was a real risk that, um, you know, when the government was viewing games with deep suspicion troublemakers doing stuff just to get attention could have been really really dangerous for the for the wider industry you know again i I worked with um elsewhere at the time and um during the uh the manhunt murder case and uh they were gunning for us government and you know just like the games industry not like any one person in particular yeah, the games industry. There were there were certain cheerleaders uh, within the government, and you know, an absolutely tragic story. Um, and uh, you know, I, I clearly don't, you know, uh, awful for everybody involved. But 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 to to lay the single blame at one computer game or video game yes. was 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 really dangerous. But actually, you know, we had um, meetings in the House of Parliament with Keith Vaz, um at the time. I know I remember one of our. Um, we, we actually wrote a response for the prime minister during questions, one of his questions, because you get to hear that he's likely to be asked one of these things. And when we were, yeah, so you sort of, you fax a response back to... Uh, so they um, got in touch with you and said, like, this is probably going to come up. Can you give us some yeah, response? Yeah, um, yeah. And who and was then, that? Was that like with Elspeth, you said? It was, El- yeah, Elspeth, who then became Yuki. You were speaking to Joe. Oh, okay, cool. On, on the last, yeah. So Elspeth merged into Yuki. You know, I think Yuki's a much more... Because back then it was the... Um, I think it was the European Leisure Software Publishers Association, and now it needs to sort of broaden its remit. But yeah, so back then there was a load of stuff going on behind the scenes that were really trying to stop a lot of potentially dangerous restrictions coming in. So sure, you know, it's funny for GTA to, you know, court controversy with Max Clifford. And there there have been other things, you know, Kirk Ewing, very dear friend of mine, he did the game where you had to assassinate JFK. (laughs) And... Um, he was doing that just for the headlines too, and you know I I like Kirk a lot, but you know be careful because <laughs> it is interesting. You know you you know I think um, as any you know entertainment art form, if you get into censorship, um, you know you're in very very dangerous water. And sure, you know not, not everything is for everybody, and what you need to do is make sure that that people are aware of what is going into games these days. And that was the problem back then is that you had generations of parents who'd watch their kids 
racing round inverse A characters or or escaping from a from um from a black and white T-Rex in 3D Monster Maid, thinking that is what video games were about then. And actually they'd moved at such a pace that um the 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 yeah, you know, it was um that allowing their kids unrestricted access, you know, not checking in, not knowing what their kids were yeah. were 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 playing was was hugely irresponsible. So it was it was difficult to get that that message out to parents, particularly those that hadn't grown up. You know, I, I think it's much easier these days because parents are aware of video games and know what they've become and do know how bored they are and are aware of, you know, what kids should be playing and what kids shouldn't be playing. And sure, you know, the uh, the legislation in this country, so it isn't legislation. It's not. It's not. Um, it's 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 um, it's illegal to sell um, a game to. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's not legal for them to play it. Um, you know, so you sort of make those choices as a parent. You know, my my seven to eight year old. Yeah, clearly, I don't work with Elspera or Yuki anymore because I wouldn't be able to say this. But he, you know, I'm happy for him to play Star Wars Battlefront. It's rated a 16, but I sort of I disagree with it being a 16. Yeah, I think it's I think it's there just because of Darth Vader's death grip. But but that's always the case, isn't it? It's always the like you know you can let your kids watch I don't know Texas Chainsaw Massacre if you want if you think yeah. they're ready for that kind of intensity and stuff. yeah i mean I, I don't want him to watch text or no, 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 i'm not implying that's that's sort Steady of you are, uh, Simon. but but um but it is tricky because actually to him he sees a number and so you know we open up the um the uh the playstation or xbox dashboard and he sees the other titles there and he's like oh uh what's unenchanted uh, daddy i'm like oh, that's that's uh uncharted yeah and he, um you, uh, he said, "Oh, can I play that?" I said, "No." He said, "But it's a 16." I'm like, "Yeah, you're not playing that." He says, "Yeah." He said, "I said, why not?" Well, you know, it's, it's too violent, and you know, it's got blood in it. It's also got swearing. And then he then proceeded to tell me that he has collected all of the swear words now. <laughs> and I said, "Including that one." And and he knew what I was talking about. He said, "Yeah, I know that one." I'm like, where did you get that from? He said, oh, "Kieran, his mate at school, decided to go on YouTube and look up <laughs> the top ten worst swear words." So very difficult to protect kids from this stuff from stuff these days. But it's 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 educating their parents. So yeah, um, but yeah. Going back to the Guitar Hero days, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd always do things that I was particularly interested in myself. You know, thinking as someone who was an avid consumer of this stuff, that anything I liked doing was probably stuff that other people would like doing. And with that in particular, it was all about um, giving the game a stage, which no one had done. You know, when, when I first came across it, it was just before Christmas and I've been sent it by Kelly and he said, oh, I really want, I really want you to take a look at this. I picked it up and I'm like, right, I am in, uh, you know, I've got to work on this game. So we, um, we pitched for it and won it, you know, with our enthusiasm and stuff. And then there were, then it was just three people. So it was Kelly, Dave Noble, who was handling sales. And there was me doing PR. And so back then you could go, Hey, why don't we do this? And then one of those two would go, yep, yeah, let's do that. You know, um, with GH2. And, um, that was when they were bought by Activision, uh, you know, it became increasingly bureaucratic and actually getting anything, anybody to do anything was impossible. Yeah. But back then you would go, right. Okay. Uh, why don't we go busking with this? That'd be fun. You know, I really want to say I bust with a video game. So we did that. We did, we did that at, um, at uh, Leicester Square Tube Station. That was, you know, that was fun. Um, for Guitar Hero 2, we held a funeral for the air guitar. Uh, so we had a proper wake in a guitar shaped coffin, um, while Slash played a eulogy and 
I'd written a script for that and people didn't know it was read out. It was delivered so somberly. People didn't know whether it was appropriate to laugh, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. Uh, and I worked with Leo Town, who you've, you've had on the show um, throughout those early days. And and that was just brilliant. You know, um, it kept me at that job for longer than it should have done because I was just having a blush. You know, it went from, it went from, um, you know, I remember getting the first week sales back for the first version of Guitar Hero and sitting down with Dave and Kelly and it had sold hundreds of units right it had bombed and we're like right what's going on here because you know that was a, that was a game that came with a plastic controller there was a lot invested in it and you know what what we're going to do and part of the issue back then was price part of the issue then was sort of novelty value and people not taking it seriously so we had to work pretty hard to get that back on track quite quickly that's crazy i had no idea that i, I oh, just assumed was, that was a smash no, straight away no, no it did really well in america because it was an um it was un- so it was it was it was unusual in america because um every week it sold more than the previous week like that's completely against the grain of video games yeah particularly at that time um so of course they import them into the uk and yeah i think it was 60 quid which was which was a lot of money at the at the tail end of was it playstation 2 it was PlayStation Two. yeah so it was coming to the you know that was quite expensive for a game like clearly you know there was there was value in it but um yeah people didn't understand i had a a meeting with gibson um right at the very start of it and you know it was it was modeled on their sg and i took it into them and they were like what you know they'd been told about it but when they saw it like what on earth is that and um but actually i like i really enjoyed working with gibson um and uh they gave me some of the greatest stories you know um we worked with a guy called david bauer and a guy called jamie uh, jeremy singer at the time and um uh we were in a meeting and david said uh he said um right we're we're sponsoring the third stage at the download festival in donington which is um a heavy uh, heavy rock uh, yeah. fe- festival um just outside Nottingham. he says yeah we're sponsoring the third stage he said can you think of um can you think of anything that we should do there and my first thought was right i would love to tell people that i've played on stage at donington so so it's like, yeah, no, I've got an idea. Why don't we get kids up on stage? And then they'll be able to say that, they'll be able to tell other people that they've played on stage at Donington. And uh, he looked at me for a moment and he's like, oh, he's going he's gonna, he's, he's gonna to suss me out here, isn't he? He realises it's all about me. And he went, yeah, I love it. Let's do that. So um, Leo and I drove up to uh, that download festival and um, we had no idea what to expect. We decided that uh, we weren't going to take any chances. So we got a brand new console uh brand new controllers and that was all going to be fine yeah and so we rock up to set up on the first night i think we had a couple of hours before we were due to go on plug the uh playstation in and we're, we're working with the like, stage manager and the stage crew and it's tremendously exciting and uh we plug the console in and it goes okay welcome to initial setup um push <laughs> push push this button to move forward and that button wasn't on the guitar controller <laughs> So I said to Leo, I was like, shit. Like, and you're on stage when this is happening, right? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're just setting up. Um, so there wasn't anybody there. And I said to Leo, I was like, we are in trouble here um, because we were, you know, we're, in the middle of a, we're in the middle of a festival site. Uh, right, I said to Leo, right, what I want you to do is, is get, I don't know how you're going to do this, but get into where the artists are staying in their, in their coaches and one of them will have a PlayStation on that coach borrow a DualShock controller off them, get it back here so that we can select what language we want the PlayStation to be in <laughs> and then we can move on. And, you know, um, we sort of sat there and then to his credit, he, he went and did it. And, 
came back and no one knew what to expect because the game had never been played on a, on a proper stage at that point. Now, years later, we, we ended up working quite closely with Live Nation, who, um, who ran that festival. Years later, they admitted to me, they're like, Simon, you know, um, that year you came and did that. We, we were convinced you were going to die on your asses. He said... Um, you know, so much so that, and that was the year where the video games industry decided that it was going to go to festivals. Yeah. So, so you had the Nintendo Comedy Tent and the Ubisoft Festival Truck and all this sort of stuff. And he said, he said, yeah, we got those guys to come and watch, and we thought it was going to be really funny. But you know, what they saw were people coming up on stage, and we like, I think there must have been about five thousand people in there that year. Um, mosh pits going and all the rest of it, and it was absolutely brilliant. You know, we were on such a high. Um, so why, like, okay, so you're doing this and you're you're playing the game, right? Yep, yep. What if you hit a bum note? Well, um, actually, those that were volunteering to come up on stage. So Leo and I became good at it. He was always better than me. Um, so he would play on expert. And actually, uh, when the bass was introduced from uh, GH2 onwards. No, yeah, it was. Yeah, no, it, was, it, was, it was. It was, yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, expert on bass was was a lot easier than expert on lead. So I played bass and he would play lead. And so the the subsequent the following year, uh, we went back and um, you know it went so well that uh, Live Nation were like, yeah, cool. You like you have to come back and do it again. We're like, we're absolutely coming back and doing it again. Brilliant. So uh, the lead song from GH2 was Sweet Child of Mine, uh, which we must have played thousands of times that year, Leo and I. And um, of course, we rocked up. With, you know, we were full of confidence. We had a used PlayStation that year, and we knew exactly what we were what we were doing. Um, so we, uh, the first night we opened, um, uh, so we start off with Leo going do 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 do, and I was coming and going boom boom do 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 do, and I think at that point someone threw something, and I said to Leo, <laughs> I said to Leo, I was like, you see that? And he went, yep. And, you know, what you don't realise about these things is that it just takes one person to do it. So they loved us the first year. And, you know, the organisers were telling us afterwards that, you know, apparently it was a sign of affection. But it started off with being like a, a mostly empty plastic cup. Um, and no, but by the end of that first session, we had had. So they, they went to they went from empty cup <laughs> to full cup to, to empty can to full can to crushed up can. We had a hubcap and a golf ball cop that <laughs> tossed at us that first night. And um, I was like, shit, what are we going to do? Like, it was awful. Um, so uh, we finished that first set. And you know, all you can do is just keep your head up, don't go to anybody and sort of treat, you know, you don't stand there raising your fist. But actually, that's... <laughs> um, that increasingly happened. So then we were getting people up who were, you know, I think one guy came and did it naked and he was gesturing and people but was throwing everything. And the guy that, you know, we'd, um, we'd worked quite a few festivals in between the first download and the second one. And the guy came up to me and he's like, Simon, if this carries on, like we're going to have to shut this down. I'm like, all right, all right. So yeah, the people were going, and there were some videos on YouTube of that year. And it's, it's just, it's just astonishing. <laughs> God only knows what were in those liquid, what was in those liquids. Um, but yeah, we sort of did it, and we got to the end of the night. We were doing five nights, uh, so we were doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday. Yeah, sorry, four nights. Um, that night, and we 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 got off, and I said to Leo, I was like, "What? On, I don't fancy doing that again." He said, "No, I don't either." So I said, "Well, I tell you what, let's just leave the console out, and hopefully it will get nicked." And hopefully we won't be able to do it anymore. And it didn't get it didn't get nicked. Uh, we actually got quite into the swing of it 
by the end of it and it and it, and it became good fun uh not not fun enough to do it the following year yeah, fortunately, yeah, yeah. fortunately by that point we were then working with the isle of white festival and it's exactly the same story again you know um we had a meet with John Giddings, who runs the Isle of Wight Festival, and um, I think it was World Tour by that time. Uh, was like Activision were really throwing a lot of money behind it, and so they'd taken this big um, consumer area at um, in this in the sort of uh, sort of festival bit, you know, yeah, off, yeah. off by where you know off. Off, apart from like the, the food vans and stuff. Exactly, yeah, and um, so he said. So John Giddings was like, "Okay, so what are you?" Um, how do you want to do this? And I said, well, you know, I think, I think we should play on stage. And, uh, he said, uh, okay, what stage? And I thought I would love to play the main stage on the Isle of Wight. And, uh, so I said, yeah, no, I think we should get kids up onto the main stage. And he, said, <laughs> he said, well, you would say that. And I said, yeah, but we've done the third stage. We've done the second stage. You know, this would be a genuine first. And so he said, yeah, all right then. And, um, yeah, we did it. So it, it, we, we were, it was quite a close partnership with the Isle of Wight festival. And, um, we decided to announce it by I was um there's a there's a statue of Jimi Hendrix um on the festival site one where he, he famously played in the in the seventies, I think yeah. it was. And um so we're chatting to John and his PR people about how we're gonna announce it. And I said, you know, why don't we um why don't we why don't we just stick the coloured buttons on Jimi Hendrix's uh statue? Uh, you know, so we'll just temporarily <laughs> just sort of temporarily do this. And he was like, yeah, yeah, cool. So we, so we went, I've got, got the ferry over to the Isle of Wight with um, <laughs> five plastic buttons to stick on the statue and a photographer went over there and did it. And you know, everybody approved it. And um, so we so we put the press release out. And of course, he was using a Fender, um, which uh, we weren't with. So we weren't working with Gibson at the time, uh, nor were we working with Fender, who were, who were, who were rock band. Yeah. Uh, but that wasn't the main issue. The main issue was that, was that people didn't quite get exactly what they'd done. They thought we'd permanently altered the Jimi Hendrix statue. And it escalated. So I remember Activision America, um, who just really didn't understand what we were up to in Europe, but they knew that it was sort of working. So rock band was the biggest selling music game in America, but in Europe it was Guitar Hero. And... Um, uh, yeah, all that. By the time they woke up, um, the story had transformed from sticking five polystyrene five polystyrene buttons onto Jimi Hendrix's statue temporarily, to desecrating Jimi Hendrix's grave. <laughs> and I'm like, "What on earth are you doing? Who gave you permission to do this?" And I was like, oh, "You said it was going to be okay." Um, but yeah, that you know, I played on the main stage at the Isle of Wight Festival, and and yeah, I have to say, it's sort of life life highlights playing. Um, super massive black hole on expert uh, then was you know in front of 35,000 people was just just unbelievable and that yeah you know like thoroughly enjoyed my time and and it's uh it was only where so I was then working on GH5 which by that point I'd managed to get Muse into because I'm a huge Muse fan and Plugin Baby was in there and we were doing a preview event at the Scala which is a famous London club that um i used to hang out in and see again being able to hire these music venues just to sort of play at yeah and I, was, I was setting up and we had um it was just me and now i was setting up on my own um so i didn't have any colleagues with me i did uh but the the venue staff were there and i had a lighting guy lights on me uh the sound guy we were just testing the sound and i was playing um plug-in baby um, so I was playing it on the guitar and I had a microphone on the mic stand because by that time there was singing in it and all. And um, I sang and played Plugin Baby on stage at the Scala on my own, finished up with the solo, fell to my knees like Matt Bellamy does. Uh, played that, ended up, um, blah, 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 put the guitar down on the floor as I was sort of bending over and just thought, well, I've got to leave my job now. It just doesn't get 
any better than this <laughs> and then i did i left i thought that's it i've sort of done done what i can um yeah uh, absolutely tremendous time yeah so so pr like varies i think if you've got stuff that you believe in uh, and stuff where you can bring your own personality to it that's where you can absolutely shine if you've got stuff that you're doing and you don't really care for it then it becomes very difficult and what i mean i always try to uh work with developers or publishers that i wanted to you know i i have deliberately lost pitches before because i i didn't feel like i could actually do them yeah um, or you know or stand in front of people and show a game off that i i didn't particularly but um trust and and but yeah you know I, it's weird with stuff like that though because like i, I imagine that, like most pr people would kind of be like oh you know let's try and mess this up a bit because we don't want to do this game and the developers are sat there thinking oh god yeah <laughs> nobody terrible. wants to publish our game yeah no i you know there were there were plenty of pr agencies at the time you know so i knew that somebody would sort of always bend over and give it but yeah. i didn't you know i didn't i i i never really wanted to do stuff just for the sake of it you know sure if you were working with a publisher and they had a portfolio of games there were always going to be games that you liked more than others and, and 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 yeah but you know i think there there were times um where you can throw your heart and soul into it and stuff and that, and that's where you can really add value and i think i think a decent pr person first of all has an absolute understanding of what their game is going to get and and therefore you know and therefore is working on it to to where um there shouldn't be any surprises with it really if yeah. you're doing your, your 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 job properly you should always um you know in as much as you've got uh, the publisher or developer on your on your right hand side is going, I want as much coverage as possible. You need to act as a conduit. But you go, well, look, you know, I don't think this guy's going to like this. So, you know, what, like, let's not give it to him. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I, is that deceitful? I'm, I'm not. I'm not certain it is. But um, but yeah, you know, I think it's that's, all about having the job, though, right? That's... Having that knowledge. Yeah. No, I found it very difficult um, because I, I, you know, I felt a bit of a fraud because. You know, you lose that creative spark, really. It's good having input into... And actually, you know, sometimes you can have input, you know, work very closely with Charles Cecil and, and working with him on the Broken Swords and, and helping, you know, um, having some input into what he's doing. That's enormously satisfying as well. Absolutely. Uh, when you're just taking something and, and giving it to someone else, that's where it... You know, there, there are loads of people that can do that, but that absolutely wasn't for me, you know. And... Um, I think I was quite lucky because I, because of my journalism background, uh, you sort of tended to have your the respect of your peers. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then with and the you've radio, already got relationships and stuff, so you know, like yeah. But you shouldn't, you know, I I, I felt absolutely terrible. I, like so, you know, I was I loved hanging. This is where I first met you, Declan. Yeah. I loved I loved hanging out with the Edge guys, Joao, David, uh, Steve, and Mark. Um, and that was such a fun fun time. I found it very, very difficult work, working in inverted commas with Edge then because like, I would never ask them. I hope I, I never asked them to do something that I didn't think that they would do. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet if they asked for something like, and I knew it was bad, I would still give it to them. But yeah, you know, it's really, really difficult working with people that you're friends with, uh, particularly in that aspect. And um, yeah, I, you know, I felt incredibly awkward and, and probably did, did my games a disservice by not pushing them in edge because you know i was you know these these are my friends but they were they were good times and you know edge was edge was such a big edge, edge had a reputation for being po face but um i think it was brilliant underneath those guys and, absolutely and, it was yeah. you know really funny as well you know in a sort of secret way so yeah i'm gonna um i've got a couple of relatively quick fire questions simon okay 
Okay, okay. Um, so we already know. I, I try and ask everyone the same sort of couple of questions, and one of them okay. is, um, "What game are you best at?" But we already know that because you're the, the sensible <laughs> soccer world champion. <laughs> let's just say that, and let's never test that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what game was I best at? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's go with that. Um, also, what game, um, if if there has been such a game? have you had to kind of walk away from and be like, I can't do this anymore. This is eating into my life. Oh, because I was playing it too much. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Uh, Skyrim, I guess. Um, because yeah, I never finished Skyrim, uh, but it's the game. I, I, Oh, I fell in love with that game hard. I could not, could not stop thinking about it. Um, yeah, I tried to think how many hours. And I, I, you know, it's weird, isn't it? Because I'm looking forward to the remaster. But why? Why am I looking forward to it? <laughs> I, you know, I can play it remastered now, um, essentially, on PC. But I'm, I might start that again. I can't start that again. Keep me away from it. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, the, the game I'm playing the most at the moment is Star Wars Battlefront. And that's because it's the opposite. Of, you know, you can it's the opposite of Skyrim. You can dip in. You can dip out. doesn't matter if you die. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, quick restarts very shallow but spectacular looking and um i'm level 54 on it and i own a season pass so i've never been level 54 anything and by <laughs> buying a season pass i've become part of the problem haven't i <laughs> i've still I'm not played that i've still not played oh, it. it's too good it does look it looks very beautiful i always see you playing it but yeah. no, i've not tried it yet um yeah. if 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 you're prone to such things simon what is uh, what is your worst rage quit I guess in a similar vein, it's uh, it's another Star Wars game, um, Star Wars Connect, um, which I had such high hopes for. You know, me, um, Dexter was four then, maybe, and he was really enjoying um, Happy Action Theatre on the Connect, which such a brilliant use of that technology. Um, you know, I think Tim Schafer absolutely nailed what you what you should do with that. Whereas something like Star Wars Connect was the opposite of it, opposite of it, right from you know, you load. You say to you, you know, you say to a to, to Dexter or, or a child. You say like, we are about to do this. And like, what amazing! I'm going to do this. Yeah, and then you have to try and select a profile. So first of all, it doesn't recognise Dexter uh, because standing in front of the camera. You're like, okay, well, I'll go and do this. You then do that. You select somewhere to store the game. You then move away, and it goes can't continue because I don't recognise you being there. You're like, oh. <laughs> This is just such an impenetrable way, you know. I, I thought we were going to play that game for ages and sort of barely did. You know, I think you got bored of it. So, yeah, just didn't get on with that at all. Um, you mentioned earlier, actually, you brought up. Um, uh, what's it? I've written it down. I remember his name, Kirk Ewing. Good friend yes. of yours, uh, who was uh, often uh, a panelist on on Games Master, as as were you, Simon. <laughs> uh, I was. What was that I was like? Well- but you, oh. were, were you, you were a reviewer. You weren't like sort well, of I was, commentating I was co- on a I game. Was, I, was, I, was, I was a co-commentator. Oh, were um, you a co-commentator? I was, yeah. Uh, not that you would know. <laughs> um, I did it for... So I did one day of filming on series four or five, the one that was set in hell. Um, and... Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of people doing it at the time. You know, so Games Master used to draw... Um, journalists in and they would either review the games or they would be commentators and i was asked to commentate once and i was convinced i was going to be brilliant at it and be the next philip schofield and and, you know this is going to be the start something very special um what i hadn't fully appreciated was well first of all i didn't know the games that i was commentating on 
uh, at the start. So I could offer very, very little <laughs> insight into it. And second, I was terrified. Um, so you record, um, I think we did six games. Uh, so you, and then they're sort of sprinkled throughout the series. And the only way you could uh, get a sense of when you were on them was was by watching them. You know, there was there was, there was no sort of advance warning or what have you. And so you pop up and, you know, it was great. I, I, it was it was amazing. You know, as a journalist, um, and then through Games Master to uh, knock around with Dominic and the and the Hewland International team. You know, Richard Wilcox, uh, Johnny, the producer. Uh, it was just it, like so exciting, and yeah. to walk onto a set and. You know, first of all, have someone spend slightly too much time um, covering up the shine of your forehead. <laughs> OK, walking into a studio caked in makeup and thinking, it's, and it, of course, that one was set in hell. So it was really hot in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've given it no thought. So um, unfortunately, these are now on YouTube and um, I've got a really bad stance. I've got a really nervous stance. So I'm sort of um, stood up. uh uh, leaning in, but I've got my shoulder, like my elbow belt bent under my arm. I'm wearing a very dark um, shirt, and it sort of tends to blend into itself. So, I, I, so I, to start off with, I look like a hunchback. I think <laughs> you can't see exactly where it goes. Um, secondly, I've got no insight at all into these. Uh, into like a, I think one of them was Road Rash, another one, a couple of SNES games that I'd not, I, I had no in-depth knowledge of, and so I was hugely out of my depth. Um, you know, you sort of think you're going to be okay because um, one of the production team will, will give you some stats to um, to drop in there. But that, yeah. you know, that doesn't keep you going for, for the commentating. So um, there was a huge period of time between filming it and then uh, broadcast. And so, you know, you're really looking forward to uh, the game coming out. And I think and it was it was broadcast actually after I um, after I left uh, the one. So it must have been late 92 early 93 perhaps and then you'd um you'd, you'd race back from work in order to watch it in order to see and i'd um i'd watch it with my then girlfriend and uh you know i was like hey i'm on i'm on, I'm on tv <laughs> um uh once so with one of them i was uh brought back into uh voiceover to re-record it and, and i'm like all right okay that's fine did that um but the worst one was uh, I was watching it with my then girlfriend who, you know, I was sort of showing off and uh, he introduces me, Dominic introduces me and I go, all right. And then it cuts to the gameplay footage and the challenges playing and the commentator is no longer me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she goes, uh, is, that, is that you, Simon? I'm, like, I'm not sure. <laughs> and so I found out from them what, you know, I was like, all right, guys. Like what happened there? And they said, "Oh, you know, there was something wrong with the levels." But I, I think we all know it was because I was terrible. <laughs> but yeah, you know, tremendously exciting uh, back then. You know, if only I'd known then though that YouTube would exist. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, that was great. You know, and, and, um, that and Games World, and then actually, um, I see. I didn't have Sky, so I never saw Games World. Right, um, Live and Kicking used to do some stuff. I remember doing. Were you on um, Live and Kicking? No, I wasn't. But I, I met the guys at Live and Kicking. Again, when I was a journalist, I used to treat that how, how I used to with PR, which was like basically go out of your way to, to do stuff that you're interested in. And then I, yeah. I was, um, yeah, I, I, I've always been obsessed with the BBC. Um, 
and uh, I just wanted to go. So I got in touch with them and we did a feature about, in fact, no, we did a feature on all the different types of broadcast media. That's so TV, radio, such, such. And talked to a load of people, but got to go to the Live and Kicking studio, uh, you know, which I was hugely excited about. And uh, yeah, I think um, I met, yeah, yeah, I met, um, I interviewed uh, Andy Peters, uh, which, you know, back then he <laughs> was, you imagine oh I, I i i genuinely can't i yeah. genuinely can't simon <laughs> um right we we started earlier like when we first started we were talking about uh 10 second ninja uh just like thank you for your kind words before. no it's brilliant and I, I i'm not like this is gonna well this well, isn't this isn't gonna come out for a little bit yet so it's not okay. gonna be as obvious and it's not was, obvious I, it genuinely isn't obvious it's, i was you know what i was so i was listening to, to, to joe twist one this morning on the way in and, uh, and as you were doing your intro i was like okay i wonder what game he's going to talk about uh and then it's like oh 10 second 10 second interacts wow uh, yeah okay well of course he should it's a great game but um i think it's it says a lot that you'd um that you, that, that, so what you said was that you that you hadn't heard of it um, yeah, it's not. So it's I think not talking it about. illustrates the challenge that we have at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's also because, like, I spoke literally yesterday, the day before, I spoke to um, a developer in Singapore. I think he's, I think he's based in Singapore. His name's uh, Ori Ori Takamura, and like, he's not like a big dev or anything. Um, but uh, he was probably the most recent example of someone who was so smart, and his games are really, really good. And right. just n- nobody knows anything about them yeah. because because there's just so much. And I've spoken, I've, this has come up on the show a lot where I talk to people and say, there's so much stuff, not just games, like everything. Like the, the, oh, there's absolutely. basically brilliant stuff that is around that I just won't ever know about just because of the volume of it. Well, that's it, you know. So you, you go back to those Doom 2 days when, you know, you think about it's just about letting people know that it's out there. Exactly. Back, yeah. back then, um, you were competing for people's money. Um, and now you're competing for people's time and time is a much more precious resource. Um, and it's much, you know, there's too much to do at the moment that, yeah. Um, being a good game is just, just not good enough at the moment. Um, generally speaking, I mean, sure you have sort of breakout hits, but, um, yeah, it is tricky. So, so 10 second indirects is published by curve. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's where you work now though. Just, we should clarify this to bring it full circle. So you're not, you're not even publishing. Yeah, and again, so, so going from journalist uh, to PR and then marketing, and you know, at every stage, um, you know, taking like peeling back the um, peeling back a layer of the industry, you know, bit by bit. Um, now, uh, now I'm in publishing, and I've been doing it for um, just over a year. You know, to actually sort of plug yourself into the games industry and um, see in real time what is going on. Um, it's been, you know, absolutely fascinating and absolutely terrifying um, at the same time. So sort of having access. So on a couple of um, couple of platforms, you can see, broadly speaking, real time um, how your games are doing. Um, and then on a couple of other platforms uh, you get you can see daily. Yeah. And then on one particular platform, you need to wait a week or email a man. Um <laughs> which is ridiculous. Um, but, you know, seeing, being able to combine, you know, what you think works in journalism with what you think works in PR with a real time insight into whether it's nudging the, the, the dial or not is, um, is amazing for me now, you know, again, who started off 
became a games journalist because I was I wanted to make you know I wanted to get into the games industry but wasn't talented enough to do it myself and sure you know I'm a I'm a I'm, I'm in charge of publishing at Curve right now and you know I'm still <clears throat> still in, in, in all of the people that we work with but um yeah seeing the difference uh like everything that you that used to be true is no longer true um so back in the old days you would um you'd work with the magazines you know as i mentioned uh with legend of kairandi but uh, but uh so as a that was an experience as a journalist pr you would get a game to a fist let's say official playstation magazine yeah eight eight weeks before it um came out and obviously it was finished and then it was sent off to be manufactured physically but you'd get it to them so that when so in time for the box being manufactured so that you could either print their logo and their score on it if it's going to be a good score or you'd sticker it but still there was this long lead time yeah uh, so that when it was on sh- on shelves uh, people could browse it and see that you know it scores scored well and now sort of almost every single part of that chain no longer exists or if it does it's a lot less important you know um uh we all believe that good scores are the guarantee of success and they are absolutely not you know there are many many brilliant games that for one reason or another struggle to take off and i think um so if we're competing for people's time instead of their money um and you combine that with the fact that that the barrier to entry for anybody to make games has never been lower. Yeah. So you know, me them me back then writing basic would have got nowhere, but now you know, Game Maker, Unity, Unreal um, Engine, those three are easily available. There are millions of tutorials about them, and anybody with time and patience can create a working project. You know, I've 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 made three terrible mobile games um oh game man is pretty good Simon. don't <laughs> don't, uh, um, don't be too down uh, on yourself and i uh i loved doing that you know i'd never i'd never appreciated the burden that creatives have so um the idea you know the understanding that when you're making a game you can be 80% there within a matter of weeks and then it will take you months to finish it off and how frustrating that is how having to temper your enthusiasm by going, hey, look, I've made this. And then you show them when I was making up, down, left, right at the time. And they're like, yep, that's just some blocks falling. And I'm like, yeah, but I did that. And like, but so um, coupled with uh, the fact that I think I've, so I've made three games, up, down, left, right was the first, um, Bang Man was the second, and, and Throw Exploding Cheese at them was the third. Uh, each of them, I think, in my opinion, has got better. Um, but they've all, each of them has had fewer downloads than the last. Um and so, uh, you know, compete for people's time. And then there's so many people doing so many things that actually, you know, getting in, getting up getting up on the store, on the relevant stores is, is a real challenge. Um, so, yeah, so to go back to 10 Second Ninja, you know, um, we tried to do a lot of things with that. Uh, the first was, um, so when I, I've been around showing it at, at shows, so I showed it, it was packs that um, particularly struck me where um, we had six games at packs and, you know, they were all very different. Uh, 10 Second Ninja was probably our most hardcore. And um, I would see the same people come back to 10 Second Ninja hourly to check where they were on the scores to see whether anybody had three-starred the final level and, you know, basically to brag about it. Yeah. And if I was showing people it from a standing start, um, what it needs to do is, um, is uh, like once it clicks, once you realize what it's doing, you're like, oh. And you, if you show it to someone, you can almost see that moment it happens. Yeah. And they go, all oh, right, this is what it's doing. We did a, um, 
a demo challenge uh, with it. So we, we created a special five-level version. You could three-star each of those um, levels. And Actually, we... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop in just to sort of okay. give some context to the game because right. yes. it's, it's, like, it's a platform game. You're a ninja. You can run and shoot shurikens and slash with your sword. And each level, you've got 10 seconds to kill the bad guys, basically. Yes. Um, and, you, you know, uh, your first challenge is to kill the bad guys in 10 seconds. But the but the real skill comes from working out how to do it incredibly quickly. So there is use that there is an obvious way, which is the way that you'll try first. And then there is a way which will innate, you know, um, you, you show someone uh, the one of the levels for the first time and then they'll do it in eight minutes, 50, and they'll feel pretty good about it. And then you go, cool, watch this. And you do it in one, 1. 1.3 seconds. And like, oh, okay. Um, and that's when you sort of, that's when you'll, you'll, you'll three star it. So yeah, yeah, no, it's instant restart. Um, it's hard, but you know, I think it's fair. It's, it definitely, um, is, uh, it definitely requires a certain type of player. Um, so what we wanted to do was, uh, so obviously we did the usual stuff like the news, the previews, the interviews, the Dan and Daniel from Four Circle Interactive were showing it all off. And they're, they're brilliant, brilliant guys to work with. And um, you, it's written in Game Maker, actually. It's a real example of what Game Maker can do. Yeah. Uh, and so Yo-Yo Games are great as well. Um, we did a special level, five levels. You could three-star each of them. And for every star that, that you, Declan, could achieve we would knock 0.008% off the launch price uh so basically we wanted people to get sort of 50,000 stars which which they did in just over a week uh but what we wanted to do with that was find a way of getting it into people's hands yeah uh, because you know that's what you need to do you need to it needs to get under your skin a little and and you know for some people <laughs> it is a hard game and that's suitable for some uh but for others you know we had um, i think our lowest scoring review on it is 45% where a guy um, <laughs> admitted that he couldn't get out of the first level. Sorry, sorry, the, the first area. So you, you need to unlock 20 stars out of 30 and he couldn't do it and he was really angry. <laughs> Still gave it 45% though, that's not bad. <laughs> well, doesn't help the Metacritic, does it? Um, <laughs> forget why we got onto that, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just tricky uh, building an audience from a standing star. Now, you know, with someone like Four Circle Interactive, they, they, They've done games previously. Um, Dan Pierce was a BAFTA breakthrough Brit, so there's already stuff there, you know. And, and so that was that was um, there were people writing about that. Human Fall Flat, you know, some like I say, some people write about it, and then more have written about it um, once they've seen how popular it is through something like Steam Spy. You know, I think Steam Spy is brilliant, um, you know, and it, and it gives you an insight into you know people people say uh, or people can dismiss it but you know I, I think it's a really useful tool for getting a barometer on sort of where things are and um you know once you know we've been trending on steam spy in the in the top three for the first couple of days of launch and now we're in the top 10 and you know that aggregates who's playing it how many people are making videos of, of it and all of this sort of stuff and people use steam spy as a form of discovery as well so yeah there's there's a whole uh you know publishing games these days is not as straightforward as it used to be um, you know, there's the, there's the, the, you need to work out where your audience is, what your audience is reading, and then, you know, try and break into that, um, into that, in, in, into that editorial space where, you know, sometimes, you know, tomorrow you've got No Man's Sky launching and everybody's been writing about the No Man's Sky patch notes and the No Man's Sky, this, that, and the other today. So, you know, would you announce a game today or tomorrow? Apparently Rami's announcing one tomorrow. <laughs> so, but, 
yeah, it's, um, you know, you need to take a real top-down view on it, on everything that's going on, and then, you know, hope the wind's in the right direction and that it sort of all takes off, you know. It stresses me out, Simon. I'm getting, I'm getting nervous on behalf of game days. <laughs> I'll be everywhere. honest with you. It's, it's, you know, I've, I've, in, in all of my jobs in the industry, this is the one that stops me sleeping the most because you can, um, you can do everything that you think um, is the right to do for each game that you're working on, each developer that you're working with, and you know, from picking things like release dates, like, well, it isn't even release dates now. It's release hours. You know, you work out what hour to launch um, on That's Steam. That's insane. Uh, uh, you know, working, trying to get a sense of what else is coming out and um, realizing that August is the indie Christmas, you know, because everybody's trying to get their games out before FIFA and Call of Duty and all of that stuff, sort of stuff. And, <laughs> um, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, under the shadow of The Witcher 3 and GTA 5, again, it's not just people um, playing those games. So if they're playing those games, they're not buying or playing yours, but then equally watching videos of other people doing it. So, you know, that's where they're investing their time. So I have done uh, exactly that. I've, right. And, I've and played through it. all of Bloodborne and watched Epic Name Bro play through all right. of Bloodborne. Right. And and so, you know, when you're doing that, you're not playing games. So, like, how do we how do we get in there? So, yeah, it's um, it's because it, you, so you can line all this stuff up and you can set a review embargo, which, you know, we we set uh, only because we would like the reviews to come out together, you know, yeah. so that so you can get a sense of um, like people writing about it at the same time. It's never, you know, to hold reviews back until after launch or anything like that. It's just to create a sense of a moment. So we, you know, you can do all that. You can get your scores in. You can push publish, and then you like, whoa, I've got no idea. And you know, like I say, with some stores you can check in and see, you know, almost minute by minute. Another, you've got to wait. 10 days you know so it's, it's a shame um, so stressful though because games are probably better than they've ever been and this is like this, yeah this, you don't abs- get bad games really anymore right and you know um it's just that launch period that is stressful because equally you always know that um there is stuff that you can do you know the whole wish list culture so we can see how many people are wishlisting our games and that's just them flirting with you going all right guys <laughs> drop the price and then we'll buy it we will buy it later so you know in order to appeal to those those um those different consumers you know you need to try and create that incentive at launch which you know is, is often difficult to do with an indie game um but you know i think you know, I've, I've not played it yet, but um, Inside did that really well, you know. Um, apparently, it's just one of those things that you need to play and not be spoiled. And so I would imagine that that's one of the ones that uh, has done really well at launch. Um, uh, but, yeah, sort of uh, otherwise, it's, it's you know, create that demand. You know, we, we always launch with a launch discount. So it's like, guys, it's, you know, it's going to be slightly cheaper than it will be in a week, a couple of weeks. So if you are going to buy it within the next you know sort of six months now is the time to do so because then you know that 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 becomes self-fulfilling if you get people buying it in numbers then you you then see via various you know either wider social networks or within you know steam or on your xbox or your your playstation you can see what your friends are playing and that creates oh okay he's doing that i haven't heard of that so you have to use all of these things to try that's the biggest thing yeah i mean that that's why i played 10 second ninjas because i saw one of my mates playing it on uh on playstation Excellent. Well, thank you to your mates. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's good. Um, it's 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 enormously exciting. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's um, it's a job where you know the job I'm doing at the moment definitely comes with the most responsibility because if you take something like PR and marketing at the end of a campaign, 
you will either do a report and you'll go, hey, here's all the coverage that I got or here, this is what I did. You pass that to someone. And if it's a lot of coverage and a lot of good coverage, you go, great, well done. My job is like, OK, well, cool. Someone's done that. But as it as it sold, you know, uh, what difference is it making? Um, and so, yeah, you sort of try, you know, you try all of these things. And, you know, certainly what was true last month won't be true next month. But, um, yeah, just uh, just doing what you can, really. Um, I think it's an enormously exciting time. <clears throat> I think, um, as you say, some of the games uh, that are, are coming out now, I, I just, you know, it, it just... I've been playing games a long time and I, I find them continually exciting. You know, I, I, my mouse was hovering over pre-purchasing No Man's Sky this afternoon. And, and um, you know, to, uh, yeah, I think to still be excited by the breadth of breadth of stuff that's coming out at the moment from one man team right through to, you know, AAA stuff and, you know, everything in between and all of that sort of thing. I think, yeah, it's great. And I'm really excited. You know, I think my generation is the first that has been playing video games continuously. And whereas we've gone through the fear in the same way that music did and TV and film did, you know, don't, don't watch that for too long. You're going to get square eyes. Um, I'm excited to see what happens to us, you know, that are continually playing video games, you know? I'm hoping full on, fully immersive virtual reality. Well, I, you know, I can't wait for the old people's home. I tell you, oh, where they so sit around with VR and the family can visit for for an hour a week. I've said while I go back to Metal Gear, whatever it's going to be. <laughs> but, um, but, but you know, like, who knows what we're doing? Like, are we going to stay? Um, like, are we going to stave off things like Alzheimer's? You know, um, for for longer because we're you know, who knows what parts of our brain we are we are keeping active? It's um. It's interesting, and it's great, you know, to see games become a, like a real grammar now. You know, my I've mentioned Dexter a few times, but you know, me and, and my wife, we all play games together. Um, Dexter's got his own YouTube channel. You should subscribe, Dexter Gamer TV. <laughs> he does a very good impression of YouTubers. Hey guys, comments below, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. Um, but you know, like we all enjoy it together, and um, that was something I was unable to do uh, with my parents, and. Um, you know, I, I can't, I can't wait to see where it goes. You know, um, yeah, it's good. It's, uh, it's still exciting. That that seems a lovely point to end on, Simon. Uh, unless there's anything that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention. I don't know. Uh, it's been, it's been a long time, hasn't it? It's been a lot longer than I thought it would be. Uh, oh, I, I very much, I very much enjoyed it. I'm not sure how interesting it is. Uh, we shall see, I guess. Well, what, um, what's going to happen, Simon? Is uh, <laughs> we'll do the intro. And then I'll just get some other guy to talk for the rest of the show. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>